All right, church family. I'm a little surprised it let me get back up here. So we'll, we'll see how round two goes uh, with this today. Uh, but if you are new here at Windsor Road Christian Church, uh, I do have some good news for you. I'm not the regular guy. We all say that when we get a chance to preach. And that's because every summer, uh, our pastor, our senior pastor, Randy Boltinghouse, uh, takes a short study break. And as I said last time, uh, this is one of the healthiest things we do as a congregation, is to give him time to prepare and to study and, and to get ready to deliver, uh, uh, you know, another year of, of messages uh, to all of us. Um, so I'm not sure how many of you are aware of this, but during the last year, uh, Randy completed this, okay? I have a copy of it. I even made him autograph this copy. Uh, this is his 240-page uh, PhD dissertation. Did you all know he did this? It's pretty amazing. And uh, I've read some of it. Um, I didn't get through all of it, as you can imagine. This is not my uh, field of study, particularly, but I was fascinated uh, by what he read. I'm not sure how many of you knew this, but Randy was already a doctor before this. He actually earned his, his, um, his doctor of ministry back in the year 2000. Yeah, but our pastor uh, is just amazing in his just relentless pursuit of knowledge to gain uh, the wisdom that he shares uh, with us each Sunday. Now, there's not a whole lot of pictures in this, so I'm not going to recommend it to any of you. Um, but there is, there's an undertone uh, that I, I think we should, we should just have a quick discussion about because what he studied in his Ph.D. Uh, dissertation was a man named E.K. Bailey. And I just learned this morning that uh, a few of us just got back from uh, a conference that E.K. Bailey puts on. Uh, Al was there and Leroy, who will be in second service. Uh, Randy went and, so, uh, and Carl Sather, I believe, listened to it uh, online. If you don't know who E.K. Bailey is, he was an African-American pastor in Texas. To be honest, we could probably fill multiple sermons just about this man and, and what he's done or what Jesus has done through him. It's incredible. Um, but uh, one of the most defining traits that Randy wrote about uh, in his dissertation was about the way that E.K. Bailey interpreted and taught and, and shared the word with his congregation. And I feel like we've really seen that a lot from this pulpit, what Randy has learned uh, through studying E.K. Bailey. And this is what I mean. What I have found by just reading a little bit about Rand what Randy has written is that E.K. Bailey was the kind of pastor that came alongside his congregation while preaching. There are so many times where this particular pulpit being higher than all of you is something that we up here look down on you and tell you our interpretation of things and want you to see it through our lens. Whereas our pastor, and as E.K. Bailey did, they do more of a preaching where it's, you know, the way it's interpreted, the way the word's interpreted and taught and presented is more about coming alongside. I mean, I can't tell you how healthy it is to hear our pastor get up here and tell you about the things he struggles with. Like, do you realize how human that makes him? That does not happen in a lot of churches, and it's something that I, I really cherish uh, about this particular church. All right, so introduction. If you don't know me, my name is Eric Snodgrass. My thesis has a whole lot more pictures in it than his, uh, and that's because I'm an atmospheric scientist, and uh, I study the atmosphere and its behavior. I study the prediction of the atmosphere. I spend my days writing the software that goes into the apps that are on your phones or on the Internet when you, when you check the weather. That's what I do, and then I spend a lot of other time telling farmers about what I think is going to happen with the weather. So I apologize if you don't like the weather, then find something else to do for the next 30 minutes or so because I'm going to talk about the weather because that is what I know. So I hope that you find this, um, hope you find this useful. I hope you find this as something you can apply and talk about with your family and friends. I hope this is something that your small groups chit-chat about this week because 
The way I see the Bible, I imagine, is very differently from the way the rest of you do, and I thought it would be kind of fun just to give you my perspective on, on one particular uh, story. So I was pretty honored when, um, when Randy asked me to speak, and if you didn't know this, we're in the middle of a three-part sermon series with me. The last one was a year ago. Uh, this is number two, <laughs> and as long as things go well, and, and I, when Randy comes back, we have the same number of butts in the seats, then, then he might ask me to do this again uh, the next time, uh, about a year from now. Um, last year when I preached, I walked through a few verses in the Bible from John, the first uh, beginning of John, and I was fascinated to study uh, what was written in those verses about the way that John wrote about light. I always find that fascinating, and I try to give you a, maybe a physicist's perspective on what those verses mean, and uh, I just have to apologize because I'm going to get really nerdy with you all again today and talk about the, the future, all right? But it may not be what you think it's going to be. I'll get to what I mean by the future in just a few moments here, but um, hopefully this will be, um, you know, this will be both entertaining and enlightening, and God be glorified with the words that come out of my mouth, okay? All right, so I gave my sermon a second title, just uh, not just the future, it has another one. Uh, my second title today is called Chris Farley. I believe I brought a picture of him along, in case you do not remember uh, who Chris Farley is. If we can go to that one real quick. There we go. Uh, the middle one there uh, is Pharaoh, and we're going to talk about him a little bit. And then the bottom one uh, down here, this is uh, the, a forecast, and I'm going to talk about what I consider to be the best weather forecast in human history. Okay? It actually happened in the Bible, so we're going to talk about it. Now, if you're curious what that animation is in the bottom right, that is our current air quality. So we have massive wildfires burning uh, in British Columbia, which is in Canada, and that smoke has been transported over the last few days uh, here. And if you woke up early this morning, you saw probably some of that smoke pretty low in the, in the sky. Uh, you probably smelled it. It smelled a bit like campfire. It's amazing to think that those fires are, are almost 2,000 miles away from us, and some of that smoke will actually end up all the way across the Atlantic into Europe in a few days. It's just amazing how the atmosphere functions, and I hope by the end of today you understand why I am so fascinated with it. Okay, there is another guy, though, that I need to start off today talking about, and the guy you're about to see up on the screen here is the first guy that we're going to discuss, and his name is Sir Gilbert Walker, all right? Now, he was an English physicist and statistician in the early 1900s, and he was recruited by the British to take over this position of director general for the Indian Meteorological Department, all right? So this is in India. Um, and by the way, this was uh, during a time of British colonial rule, where much of the world was actually under their colonial rule. And it was of great strategic interest um, to uh, both India and Great Britain to understand a meteorological phenomenon we call the Indian monsoon, all right? So my story today is going to start with, with a weather event, and basically this is what happens. Every summer, as heat builds across India and Asia, this what we call thermally direct circulation, the wind, the way the wind blows, develops and draws all this very warm, moist air from the Indian Ocean across the subcontinent of India, kind of like what you see in this picture up here. And as it does so, that very warm and humid air, and by the way, just to explain to you what it's like to be in parts of India, the humidity coming off the Indian Ocean combined with the heat from the subtropics of India means that it is routine for them to have heat index values between 110 and 130 every single day in summer. And don't forget, there's 1.4 billion people that live there that are, are dealing with all of this. All right, now when that flow comes across the Indian subcontinent, like the arrows show, it runs into the largest mountain chain on the face of the earth. And that mountain chain is called the Himalayan Mountains. And that takes the air, which is running horizontally, and sends it straight up. 
Now, the neat thing about the way that our atmosphere works is if you get air to rise, it will start to cool. And if you start the air cooling, it leads to condensation. And condensation makes clouds, and clouds make rain. And to tell you how much rain falls during the Indian monsoon, which starts in July and usually ends in September, well, let me just give you a few numbers, okay? I'm curious how many of you know what the average annual precipitation is for Champaign. Uh, that's a rhetorical question. I'm going to tell you. It's 40 inches, okay? There are parts of India that receive 40 feet of rain in four months. And that flow of moisture is absolutely critical to everything that India does, all right? Now, if you're curious, the world record for the most rainfall in one year was set in India. It's in a town in the foothills of the Himalayas called Cherapunji. And between the years of 1860 and 1861, they received 1,042 inches of rain. But remember, eight of those months it was bone dry. Four of them produced over 1,000 uh, inches of rain. Okay, so it was Sir Gilbert Walker. Remember that guy a few minutes ago? It was his job to study the monsoon and predict its timing and strength. And um, his predecessors did a terrible job at doing this. In fact, they were both fired. But the reason why we study it is because when the Indian monsoon is early and strong, it literally puts tens of millions of people at risk for flooding. And if it's late or if it's weak, those same people are then put at risk of, of catastrophic drought, which often leads uh, to famine. So as I said, Walker's predecessors were quite unsuccessful at their jobs. Remember, this was the early 1900s. And they'd failed multiple times to predict the strength of this monsoon, which ultimately led to the hiring of Sir Gilbert Walker. Now, stick with me here, because I do promise Jesus actually gets into this story uh, in just a few moments here, okay? So you have Walker's predecessors. Their biggest problem was this. Um, they weren't seeing the whole picture. It was very difficult for them to kind of study and see the entire thing. Uh, and what was going on here was that they brought in this other guy, Sir Gilbert Walker, who had the capability of doing that. So this is what he did that was different from his predecessors. He began to collect weather data, not just from India, but from about half of the planet. And then he spent a long time using a brand new statistical algorithm called regression analysis to figure out if any of these weather variables correlated with one another. Now, you are all quite familiar with that statistical uh, problem-solving technique, regression analysis, whether you know it or not, because it is the basis of the algorithms that are used, that Netflix uses to tell you what you're gonna binge watch next. And if you're curious when you're flipping through your phone and Facebook keeps giving you ads, or you see these certain videos and pictures, same algorithm chose you, uh, chose what you're gonna see there that Sir Gilbert Walker was basically the first to use back in the early 1900s. The point of it is this. When you attempt to correlate these multivariate data sets, what you end up getting out of this, this regression analysis is a line. And that line is predictive, which means you can look at the behavior, see where you are on it this year, and know what to expect. So he was the first one to use this. And what did his research show? Uh, it showed something that was far bigger than what was previously thought to control the strength of that monsoon. And what was, what was discovered was this. Now fast forward a few centuries, and what this next animation that I'm about to show you here is, is what we now study and understand that Sir Gilbert Walker was the first to get. And this animation uses satellite data to look down and measure the temperature of the Earth's oceans. Now the place I want you to focus on is between South America and Australia uh, for the geographically challenged that's here and there. And do you see all the warm water that's in the middle? 
That's what Sir Gilbert Walker was attempting to study and understand. So what is it, okay? This oscillation in these ocean temperatures was actually symptomatic of what the atmosphere was up to. And periodically, the trade winds which blow along the equator from the east to the west, not like our winds, they actually go the opposite way, from the east to the west would just, well, they'd speed up, or sometimes they would slow down or stop or even reverse. And what Walker discovered was a statistically significant correlation between the ocean temperature patterns and the strength of the monsoon in India. Now, here's what he called it. He called it the Southern Oscillation. What he didn't know was that it already had a name. And if you'll bring up my next slide here, you probably know the name first um, from this particular Saturday Night Live skit. For some of you that are not old enough, that is Chris Farley. And here he is in 1997 doing a very familiar Saturday Night Live skit where he is attempting to interpret the name that is written across his belt. It is the word El Nino. And every time there is an El Nino, global weather patterns are massively disruptive. And in fact, in 1997, which was one of our most recent strong El Ninos, like I said, it was so popular that it made it all the way to Saturday Night Live. So what is it? And who gave it its first name? Who called it El Nino? Well, it was actually Peruvian fishermen, and this is the part of the story I love. You see, these Peruvian fishermen had been under Spanish rule for centuries, so they spoke Spanish, they had a Spanish culture, they adopted Spanish religion, which was Catholicism, and what they did was they fished in the very cold and nutrient-rich waters that are just off the coast of Peru, which is in South America. Some of you in this uh, crowd have, have been there at an orphanage that we have. Now, what would happen was that every once in a while, these really cold, nutrient-rich waters, which they relied on for their livelihoods, would just suddenly warm up. And those trade winds, which normally kept it cold, they would just fade or disappear or even stop. It would actually cause a collapse in the fishing industry and actually send Peru into major economic turmoil. But the fishermen noticed that this ocean temperature change often reached a peak around the very end of the year, in late December. So they called it El Nino and always capitalized it because the reference here is to a very specific little boy. When we talk about El Nino, you should always capitalize it because who it's talking about is Christ. That's El Nino. And when we think about this, it's this weather event that's perfectly timed with when we celebrate his birthday around Christmas time. So unlike what Chris Farley told you to properly translate El Nino, uh, it's Jesus not the Nino, if you've seen the skit. All right, now what we did was this. I promise I'm gonna get somewhere with this, all right? Sir Gilbert Walker, he called it the Southern Oscillation, the changes in the winds and the ocean temperatures. The Peruvian fishermen called it El Nino, and what we ended up doing was combining it. So if you're ever watching the Weather Channel or you're watching the news and someone says ENSO, E-N-S-O, they're saying El Nino and the Southern Oscillation. It is the largest and most disruptive weather thing there is on earth, and it's affecting all of you right now. When you go out there and breathe in a few minutes, I can actually link the behavior of what's happening in British Columbia to that event happening today. Okay, now the main story that I really wanna get to today is this. It's about drought, because when Randy asked me to preach, we were in the middle of one, and I'm like, oh, I think I'll talk about drought. <laughs> And I want to let you know something about drought. When it comes to natural disasters, there is no other weather phenomenon, no other natural disaster that has claimed more lives than drought has. Not even close. No earthquake or tsunami or hurricane even comes close 
to the catastrophic change in human existence because of drought. You see, drought gets us at the heart of, of what we are, and that's our food sources. And what drought can often do is cause famine and mass migration and, and even war. So this is the story I want to tell you today. If you will, bring up this next map I'd like to share with you here. We've been studying El Nino for a long time. And the rest of the story I want to share with you today before we do some quick application at the end has to deal with this map, which shows you what typically happens when there's an El Nino event. And I put a little black box, a dashed black box, around the spot that I would like to talk with you about today. Because it turns out that Sir Gilbert Walker's predecessor did get one thing right before he was fired, and that he saw a linkage between the strength of the Indian monsoon and the precipitation patterns over the Nile River. He just didn't know what caused them. So check out this next picture, which was taken by NASA, of this particular uh, part of the world, okay? What you're seeing here are the lights and population centers of a place where, you know, basically the entirety of this book was written. That's what it looks like from space if we look down on it and see it uh, at night. Now, the Nile River flows from south to north, and along its floodplains are some of the world's most agriculturally productive land. It was this river that served as the fertile plain on which the Egyptian civilization grew. So my second of two stories today starts a few thousand years ago here in Egypt. And the book of Genesis tells us about the origins of a family, and a family whose lineage God uses to bring salvation through his son, El Nino, Get that now, okay? To El Nino, it's Jesus to, to all of us. So I'm going to pick up the story on Genesis where we're talking about both the grandson and the great-grandson of Abraham and Sarah, and their names, of course, are Jacob and Joseph. Now, their story is quite familiar to most of us, but I'm going to give you a quick recap of Genesis 37 to 42. I will not read it because that would take the next couple of hours, so we're just going to get a recap of this year, okay? So, all right, Joseph's brothers uh, were jealous of him. Okay, they hated him, they wanted to kill him, but Reuben, one of Joseph's brothers, convinced them to, instead of killing their brother, to throw him in a pit. That subsequently led to Joseph being, led, uh, excuse me, being sold into slavery to a caravan of Midianite traders who were on their way to Egypt. So this family in strife, the youngest brother is the one they don't like, or the second youngest, and they chuck him into a pit rather than kill him. Now, Joseph's brothers then went back to their father, Jacob, who showed favoritism to Joseph, and told him of Joseph's death. But in reality, what was going on was that Joseph was sold by the Midianites to uh, a, an officer of a pharaoh in Egypt named Potiphar. And in Genesis 39, we learn how Joseph became the overseer of Potiphar's estate, and we also learn of Potiphar's wife's desire and attempt to seduce Joseph. Now, as Joseph became this prominent figure in Potiphar's house, and his, Potiphar's wife attempted to seduce him, and Joseph refused, Potiphar's wife staged a situation where she framed Joseph for attempting to take advantage of her, which subsequently led to Potiphar throwing Joseph back into prison. And while in prison, we learn in Genesis 39:21 that Joseph gained favor again in the sight of the prison keeper, and he was soon put in charge of all of the prisoners. So you just notice this path of Joseph's, li uh, Joseph's life where every situation he gets put in, he finds a way to excel through the grace of God. It's fascinating to read. Now, this is where I think the story gets really, really interesting. It's in Genesis 40, because we're told of two additional prisoners that get chucked into the same cell that Joseph is in. They're actually Pharaoh's cupbearer and his baker. And while they're in prison... They both have, the first night, 
uh, a dream. And one dreams of one thing, the other dreams of another, and when they wake up, they're both extremely troubled by what they dreamt, and they share the story of their dreams with their prison cellmate, who was Joseph. Now, Joseph immediately interpreted those dreams for them. And for the baker, the news wasn't good. Joseph told him that in three days he'd be hanged. But for the cupbearer, Joseph told him that his dream meant that he would be restored before Pharaoh. And he asked one thing in return for the interpretation of that dream. He just simply said, will you remember me when Pharaoh restores you? Okay, so three days goes by, and Pharaoh's having a birthday party. And I didn't know this, but this Bible told me that basically every time the Pharaoh had a birthday party, they would release a bunch of prisoners. And it was kind of a part of the party to decide who, who, who survived and who, who was killed. A lot different from the way we do birthday parties now. But the long story short is that the things that Joseph interpreted happened. The baker was hanged, and the cupbearer was restored to his full position. Now what's interesting is that the cupbearer forgot the one thing that Joseph asked him to do, which was to remember him. And instead, two full years go by, and the story picks up speed again in Genesis chapter 41. And what this story led to was kind of the third thing I wanted to tell you about today, which is the greatest weather forecast in history. So me being a meteorologist, I love this story, and I like to tell it to you, okay? So that's the setup. Here's the fun part. Okay, in Genesis chapter 41, we get this really graphic account of Pharaoh's back-to-back terrifying nightmares. In each, he was standing before the Nile River, and he witnessed the following scenes. In the first dream, he saw seven plump and healthy cows feeding on the grass right next to the Nile River. And then, suddenly, seven thin and emaciated and diseased cows show up, and they consume the healthy cows. I don't know about you, but if I had that dream, I, I would absolutely woken up sweating and wondering wh- what the heck that actually meant. And Pharaoh did the same thing. But like many of us, he fell right back asleep and had a second dream. And in this second dream, there were seven healthy ears of grain, okay? Stalks of grain. They were plump and they were good. But soon there appeared seven thin and unhealthy ears, blighted by an easterly wind and covered in mold. And just as with the cows, the grain The moldy grain rose up and ate and consumed the healthy grain. And Pharaoh woke up again and was troubled by the similarities of this dream. So what did he do? He called all of his wise men and his magicians and he said, interpret this dream, but none of them could. But standing off to the side, witnessing Pharaoh's distress over this sequence of dreams was was the cupbearer. And in that moment, he remembered Joseph. And he told Pharaoh of a Hebrew that he had in prison that had an extraordinary gift of interpreting dreams. He reminded Pharaoh of the birthday party three years ago, or two years ago, when uh, he was given his job back while the baker was hung. And he told Pharaoh that this prisoner was still there in the pits and that he could interpret Pharaoh's disturbing dreams. So Pharaoh called him up. And in Genesis 41, 15, this is what we read. He says, I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And in verse 16 Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. So Pharaoh recounted his dreams, and Joseph said in verse 25 this. He says, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. So the seven good cows and good ears of grain represented seven years of abundance that were to come first. 
During this time, there would be ample rain and ample grain in the land, and the fertile soil would produce bin-busting yields. But this would be followed by a time period of drought and famine that would be so severe that it would consume the land and its people. And he said, the doubling of your dream means that it's a certainty, and it's about to start. Now, Joseph didn't know why the rain was going to stop on the headwaters of the Nile River. It would be another 3,000-plus years before Sir Gilbert Walker and some Peruvian fishermen would discover that this 14-year dramatic swing in global precipitation patterns that Joseph just predicted was going to honestly reshape human existence and change the course of the entire Jewish history, history, excuse me, that it was likely due to a slight shift in the trade winds across the Pacific Ocean that we now call Enso, or El Nino in the Southern Oscillation. All Joseph knew was that God had given him a gift and he just used it to his fullest extent uh, in a God-honoring way. Now this part I really like. Joseph immediately, in front of Pharaoh, provides a solution to this problem Pharaoh is about to have. And he said, for the next seven years, store up 20% of the produce of the land during this time of plenty so that when the famine hits, Egypt will have food. And what I love about it is it seems as though, as you read it, that Pharaoh didn't skip a beat. He put Joseph immediately in charge of the endeavor and essentially promoted him to prime minister. In fact, you could read this part of scripture and, and think that Joseph went from prisoner to prime minister in the span of two hours. And I'm going to pretend that that's what happened because I like that version of the story best. It's just amazing to think about this. And this is what happened. Seven years of rain and plenty went by and Joseph dutifully stored up the grain. And then during the eighth year, a massive socioeconomic drought began and the famine hit hard. Egypt became one of the only places in the whole region that had food because of God's provision through Joseph. Now, the rest of the story. Back in Canaan, are Joseph's brothers and his dad, the ones that sold him into slavery, that wanted to kill him. And Jacob's dad says, you boys need to go to Egypt and buy food. We've heard it's the only place that has food. I'm going to send 10 of you, but I'm going to keep Benjamin, my youngest, at home. In fact, Joseph's brother uh, at home, and the rest of you can go. So they went, and when they arrived, Joseph immediately recognized his brothers, but his brothers did not recognize him. And there's an interesting interaction between them that I want you all to go home and read about in Genesis 42 because Joseph accuses them of being spies, and it's a very, very fascinating part of the story. Joseph tells them to leave one of their brothers, Simeon, in Egypt and then return home to their land and bring back their youngest brother to prove to them that they were not spies because the penalty of being a spy in Egypt was death. But he gives them the grain But interestingly enough, he hides the money they had brought to pay for the grain inside of the sacks of grain that he gave them. And on their way back to Canaan, they discover this, and when they get home, they tell their father exactly what happened. This is Jacob, of course, and he's deeply troubled because Simeon is still in Egypt, and the guy who gave him the grain says, you got to come back and bring Benjamin. And Benjamin is the one that his father wanted to keep his youngest son. Now, time goes by. We get into year two of the drought, And Jacob is again forced to send his sons, including Benjamin, because of Joseph's request, back to Egypt to buy more grain. To ensure that there wouldn't be trouble, they brought double the money, the money that was given back and more money. And Judah promises Jacob that Benjamin will be safe and that he will return to his father. 
Now, on their second trip to Egypt to get the food, Joseph tests them again in Genesis 44 through an interesting plot where Joseph plants a cup in Benjamin's sack of grain and then tells the brothers that whoever has this cup must stay with him in Egypt. It was a ploy to get Benjamin to stay. When it was discovered, Judah pleads with Joseph to take him instead of his younger brother, Benjamin, because if they do not return with Benjamin, the grief will likely kill their father, Jacob. Now, in Genesis chapter 45, is just an amazing change in the whole narrative because Joseph, I don't think, could take it any longer that he was putting on this charade that he wasn't their brother, and he finally identifies himself. And he says to them, God has used me in the situation that you put me through to preserve our family in this time of drought and famine. And he forgave them for what they did. And he tells them, go home and get dad. Bring Jacob back. Bring the entire family back. Because when you get here, I've already talked to Pharaoh. And we are going to give you the best land that we have. It's called Goshen. And what follows is the thriving of Jacob's family and the fulfillment of God's provision and covenant. It's an amazing story. It's also a story where Jacob gets renamed. His, his new name is, is Israel. And although Genesis ends with the death of Jacob, uh, or Israel, and Joseph, this family of 12 brothers and one sister grew in Egypt over the following 400 years to become a family of over 3 million people. And they did pretty well uh, until this guy shows up. If you'll show my next slide here. Do you remember him, right, from... The Ten Commandments. That's Joel Brenner, okay? So this is now the Pharaoh that is the cause of the next four books of the Bible. So do you see where we are in Bible history here? Okay, what I am absolutely fascinated about this, because we could talk about this in a thousand different ways, is that Joseph absolutely nailed a 14-year weather forecast. Do you know how desperately bad I, I would love to do this? <laughs> He gets a promotion out of it. He restores a relationship with his family, provides food security for millions of people, uh, and, and along the way, he becomes one of the most important historical figures. He's also in the lineage of Christ. I mean, just, I can't even tell you if it's going to rain tomorrow. Do you understand this? <laughs> or Wednesday. I think it might. Um, I'm not 100% sure. And Joseph calls for one of the biggest and longest-lasting socioeconomic droughts in history. And I'm fascinated by that. So this is why I'm telling you this story today, because for the last several months, I've been telling myself this story over and over in my head, because up until two weeks ago, we were in a deep meteorological drought in, in Champaign. A deep one. It was bad. Spring droughts are not good for us. And every farmer that I work for had to endure my constant delivery uh, of bad news, where every forecast I gave was like, nope, no more rain, no more rain. The rain's still too far away. It's not coming. And did you know that we had parts of this county that went from May 8th to June 28th without any rain? And since we've been keeping records in Illinois, that's the longest stretch of days in spring we've ever had of having no rain. Now, that drought was compounded by the fact that last fall was super dry. Do you remember that? That drought last fall took that mighty Mississippi River, the one we bought in 1803, which is a very steady and incredible river, took its levels down so low that they couldn't even put a barge on it. That was the drought last year that was also prompting several wildfires, and that was a drought that actually reoccurred this spring again on the Mississippi River. And by the way, just for the fun of it, 
If you ever bother to look at the Mississippi River and look at all the towns along it, we named a lot of the towns after towns along the Nile, like Memphis and Cairo and all sorts of stuff like that. So there's certainly a relationship there. But I found myself, to be honest with all of you, I, I lost a lot of sleep over prediction. There's only been two times in my career that I have had trouble sleeping because of a weather forecast. They both happened in the last, uh, in the last year and a half. Uh, the first one was Hurricane Ian. I was worried Hurricane Ian was gonna hit Tampa. And if that would have happened, that would have been a trillion dollar weather disaster. And every day leading up to it, I was preparing for the worst. And thankfully that storm made a hard turn and missed. But still, the second time was this drought. Now, during the time of this drought, I received hundreds of emails phone calls. I did dozens of radio and television interviews. You know what everybody always asks me when we're in a drought? What do you think they ask me? When is it going to rain? And imagine you had to wake up every day and tell people, I'm not sure, but it's not coming up anytime soon. This is going to get worse before it gets better. So you might want to ask me the same question. Why, why was this such a poorly forecast event? I mean, forecasting is about predicting the future. Why did we do such a terrible job with this? And I doubt my answer will surprise you given the beginning of this sermon. We are in the middle of an El Nino. And that El Nino didn't arrive as fast as most of us thought it would get here. Those ocean temperatures have been changing for a while. And normally when those ocean temperatures change, we tend to be the benefactors of that. It tends to rain like mad around here. But that slow progression of El Nino, well, I think it was there to teach me a lesson because my non-stop thinking about drought and my desire to know the future, to know when it was gonna break, led me to the two stories I just shared with you here. So thinking about all of this, this is where I wanna kinda draw this all together. I've been thinking about two big questions about, about the future, and I wanna discuss these questions with you and then give you an application, and hopefully that'll be something you all will talk about later, okay? So here's my two questions. My first one was this. Why is it so hard to predict the future? Why? Why can we not do it? Why can we not see into the future and tell you what is going to happen? And the second thing is this. What does God's word say about our desire to know the future? I don't care really about what it says about the future because I'll tell you what it says in a moment. I care about what it says about my desire to know it because I think, and many of you in this room will probably agree, one of the things we struggle with most as a population is anxiety. And what are we anxious about? You're like, well, I'm anxious about, you know, finances. I'm anxious about this, that, or the other. Or you say, well, I'm actually worried a lot about my past. I'm like, well, do you know why you're worried about your past? You're only worried about it because of what it might do to you in the future. All of our anxiety is about something that is yet to happen. And I want to tell you what this book says about us and the future. So, so here we go as we start to wrap this up. All right? I wanted that drought to break, and I wanted to deliver that good news. And so I want to tell you again why it's so hard to predict. I've only got one answer for you about this, uh, and it's just simply this. And I'm sorry if you are not a nerd, <laughs> but God loves solving nonlinear systems of equations. I guarantee it. I guarantee it because He created nearly every single system on this planet to be governed by them. Nonlinear systems of differential equations. Now let me explain to you what I'm talking about if you don't solve these things on your daily cadence of work, okay? Every day when I wake up, most of us in this room do the same thing that I do when we get up. We do something that's very predictable actually, something we can predict. You check the weather. I know you do this because my server 
between 5 a.m. and 9 a.m. receives hundreds of thousands of hits just on the little apps that I build. And I know people are out there looking at this every single day. Have you noticed, though, that when we tell you about the weather, we often present a range of outcomes or a probability of event. We say, uh, well, today's highs will be in the mid-90s. We don't say it's going to be 94.2 degrees Fahrenheit. Or we say there's a 60% chance of storms today. Why can we not tell you exactly what's going to happen? Because I think if we can answer that, we'll start to understand why knowing the future and where it's going is so difficult for us. Bigger question is, why can't I tell you what the weather's going to be like next week? In fact, if you ever hear a meteorologist get up and tell you that they know what the weather's going to be weeks or months in advance, they're lying to you. We should have Randy include that in his little Satan lie thing, because that's another one that I think that's, that should be up there. But this answer is pretty simple, all right? I told you a moment ago that God designed this world to be complex, and he had to. Why did he design it with such complexity? He didn't want it to be boring. That's my determination. And the reason why I have that as the way I think about his design is because he made us as image bearers, and we don't like to be bored. So he built this incredibly diverse and heterogeneous and complex system so that we would enjoy it. I am absolutely certain that he gets a kick out of watching me forecast the weather. And, and I understand why he does that. I mean, t take a look at this next video here. This video you're about to watch was uh, shot in Nebraska once it comes up here. And you're going to watch a time-lapse of a supercell thunderstorm. We actually call these an LP, a low precipitating supercell thunderstorm. Notice there's not a lot of rain falling out from the bottom of it. You ask about predicting something like this, why we can't do it perfectly days in advance or even hours in advance. And I'm going to tell you why, okay? If this supercell would have had any tiny change in its timing, it may not have formed at all. Or if the humidity would have increased just a bit, instead of being an LP, not making any precipitation, it could have produced a microburst. You change the mid-level winds inside of that storm, it could have produced a tornado. If you change the temperatures at 3,500 feet, it may have made baseball-sized hail. All of these things were possibilities for that one little tiny, tiny storm in Nebraska. So we don't forecast stuff like this. You know what we do? We call it now casting. I watch it form and try to just predict its next couple of minutes because of the complexity in the system. And what I find fascinating is that we obsess over future parts of our existence that we can't predict. Do you notice that? Those are the things you obsess about, I obsess about, over the things we can't predict or anything that has the slightest chance of impacting our lives in a way that we don't want. We don't worry about the sun rising tomorrow. How many of you lost sleep last night worrying that the sun was going to come up? I can perfectly predict that it will do that again tomorrow. But I imagine there are some of you in this room that over the last few years have worried about the performance of the stock market. By the way, that's a nonlinear chaotic system. Good luck trying to predict that too. Now, we live in this system, as I told you, that, that's complex. And I want to tell you why it has complexity. One, there are multiple interactions between all the pieces. Just think about the people in this room. There's randomness, there's uncertainty, there are what we call emergent and unpredictable human behaviors, and there's a knowledge gap. And that knowledge gap means that we don't know all of the factors that, that control what we're, we're trying to predict. And don't forget, there's chaos. Now, those terms to a lot of you go in one ear and out the other, so I'm going to give you an example of what I'm talking about here as to why we can't predict the future. 
Think about this. What if I were to have told you last night, since you all need Moses, predict what time you're going to get to church today? Now, a lot of you know that I was going to start a little after 9 o'clock, so you were probably going to try to be here by then. But if you came to church with your family, think of all the interactions that you had between you and your family members, like the speed at which your kids brushed their teeth or laced their shoes or how quickly they eat breakfast or where breakfast ends up. <laughs> they have emerging and unpredictable human behaviors like the unforeseen dirty diaper or the reaction to that stain on the shirt that you chose to wear or the discovery of a mismatched sock. There's a knowledge gap, too, that maybe you didn't know that you get stuck behind a farmer this morning on Route 150 transporting a sprayer going 25 miles an hour. And there was that one thought in your head that I think I could drive under it. Do not do that. Please do not do that. But you see, you didn't predict that, and you certainly didn't predict that other truck that was in front of you when you got on Staley that kicked up that one tiny pedal that now, excuse me, a, a, a rock that put a, a mark in your windshield that you're going to have to get fixed. Do you see what I'm talking about? All of that complexity and randomness means that you can't even predict probably what you're going to do this afternoon, let alone where things are going to the future. So before your mind just keeps wandering down this rabbit hole of the things I just talked about, I would like to give you the other side of the equations God provided, and this is where I just turn into a, a really big geek, all right? Because God gave us some gifts. They're the gifts of continuity. They're the gifts of the first two laws of thermodynamics. They're the gifts of the four fundamental forces of nature. You see, the principle of continuity ensures that we don't run out of air to breathe. You're not predicting if you're going to take your next breath. It's here. It's provided, and continuity ensures that it will. The first law of thermodynamics ensured that the fuel in your tank will, in fact, burn, resulting in a transfer of energy to make your car's wheels go forward. The second law of thermodynamics ensures that that heat exchanger that's on that air conditioning unit makes this room comfortable enough for me to preach without sweating and for you to all enjoy this at a comfortable room temperature. Gravity is guaranteeing that the sun will rise tomorrow. The principles of electricity and magnetism ensure that your cell phone will work later today when you need to call grandma. And the weak and the strong nuclear forces within each atom ensures molecules like water become water and don't decompose radioactively so fast that you can't drink it. See, all of those things are also in the complexity of what God made, and you can rest in all of that. But we often don't find ourselves doing that, do we? We often find ourselves thinking about the future, and that brings me to this second point and my last point for today. My second point was this. What does God's Word say about our desire to know the future state of things? Because by the very nature of the design of our brains, our brains, you understand what they do? They are constant prediction machines. You store memories, and your brain recalls memories to put them into the context of the future. Do you know what mathematical technique your brain uses to do that? Regression analysis. That's why we came up with it. It's amazing what it's doing just to make you think about the future. But last week, Randy preached from this pulpit on a lie that Satan used us to give us false security about the future. It's the lie that God will never give you more than you can handle. And one of the biggest reasons that we, me, why we allow Satan to tell us this lie is because believing it removes worry about the future. If I believe that lie, 
I don't think that I'll ever get something that I can't handle. You know what that does? That turns me into an idol. That takes me away from God's, my dependence on God. And that's something that we need to be thinking about. So I found myself thinking through this while sitting on a plane this past Thursday evening in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I did not have my Bible with me in my bag, so I decided to ask chat GPT the same question that I just asked you all. What does God's word say about our desire to know the future? I was a bit surprised by what it came up with. It rattled off some incredibly insightful verses about the, both from the Old and New Testament, but about this theme. And I broke down what it gave me into two separate ideas, and I found it fascinating because it gave me a set of verses Warning about false prophets. Warning about trying to predict the end of times. That was certainly the first thing it came up with. And it stated right at the top of the answer that chat GTP gave me, the first thing in bold said, only God knows the future. I was amazed that this is the first response that came out. And that was followed by scripture. The first scripture it gave me was in Deuteronomy 18, which outlines a test for distinguishing false prophets from true ones. And a warning against divination, or attempting to predict the future using signs and omens. And then there was a second group of verses. And that second group of verses spoke of God's plan for the future and trusting in his guidance through the uncertainties of life. That's lit- I've lifted that word for word out of chat GPT. And the top hit in that category was a verse from Proverbs that I'm sure many of you can recite by heart. It's 3, 5, and 6. It says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your understanding. And always submit to him, and he will make your paths straight. These were the words that King Solomon shared with his son, and I'm almost certain that King David shared those with Solomon first. The next verse came from Matthew in his Sermon on the Mount. This is uh, in Matthew 6, uh, 34. He says, Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Now I sat there and I read these verses. And I was like, wow, you know, those were pretty easy verses for me to rattle off to all of you. I can just tell you them and pull them out of context and give them to you. But to be honest with you, if I'm going to be sustained by this book, I need more than that. So here's the last thing I want to share with you today. It's a question about how we truly rest in God's sovereignty. How we truly rest in his ownership over our future. And what's amazing about it, and we actually sang about it this morning, is that the key to understanding the future is to just remember. That's actually the first function that our brains have. We often learn more about the future by looking to the past and seeing the provisions God has made and his constant upkeeping of the covenant that he established with us. You see, the rest of Exodus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers is a retelling of a journey that should have only taken two weeks This is the journey of Exodus, leaving Egypt, getting back to Canaan. But it took 40 years. And I think what God wanted Israel to do was to return to Canaan, a changed people, set apart, wholly dependent on him. He wanted them to remember their deliverance from slavery, remember the manna he provided, remember the Ten Commandments. His son, God's son wants the same thing. Did he not teach us? Did he not teach us this when instructing us on how to pray? You look in Matthew, and you'll find that the very next line in the Lord's Prayer after exalting his name and recognizing his sovereignty is a prayer request. And the prayer request is, give us this day our daily bread. 
It's not a request for food. It's a request for peace. A peace that passes understanding. A peace that comes from knowing we have a God who sustains us and a Savior who's gone before us. The path to a life free of anxiety about the future starts with prayer, starts with that prayer, and is fed by daily digging into God's word. Why? It's simple. The more I read this book, the more I realize the reason why we read it. It is to remember. It's to remember what has happened in the past. Because if you can remember what has happened in the past, you see the future more clearly. We're not designed to predict the future. We just aren't. We can't do it. It's too complex. We have tremendous amounts of anxiety about it. But can I remind you of something really important here? It was God who came up with the construct of space and time. So when you're worried about the future, remember the guy who came up with this. Now I'm going to finish with one last thing here, all right? If you wouldn't mind, bring up this next picture. That drought I worried about for months ended with this. That is a picture taken by a friend of mine. Uh, His name is Will Pritchard. That's the leading edge of a squall line behind that shelf cloud, which looks terrifying. The winds were uh, 80 miles an hour. And this was how the atmosphere, by God's design, decided to break a drought. That particular line of storms was born in Wyoming, crossed Nebraska, went into southern Iowa, hit the Mississippi River about 10 o'clock in the morning on June 29th. I watched it the entire time because I wasn't here for it. And then as it came across the Mississippi, it lined out. If you wouldn't mind showing my next animation, it looks something like this on radar. And as that storm went across here, breaking our drought, it did so with a lot of damage. We call this a derecho. It's a type of storm that brings a lot of damage. But you know what else it did? It changed our local weather patterns. And since this has come through, have you noticed the humidity has finally returned? It's pretty gross outside, to be honest with you. But that humidity is amazing because you know what it does? Continues to fuel the storms that come every single day since then. And that crop, when I left, looked terrible. And after two weeks of rain, it has been completely restored. Now, I have a feeling that since June 29th, when that storm came across, God had a bit of a laugh at my expense because he knows how much I enjoy trying to predict the future state of an atmosphere that he designed. And I bet he was saying this. I don't know, but this is my guess. Eric, I've allowed you to learn so much about the way the weather works. I've showed you repeatedly how I've constructed this system. I've had a great time watching you attempt to solve the equations that I came up with. And I even showed you things like like, like El Nino. And yet you still lost sleep over a forecast. And I bet the last thing you'd say is, next time, will you just remember this? And probably the day I figure that out will be the day I retire. But that's okay. We're in a constant mode of learning more and more about God. And I think that that is what we're called to do. It's what Israel was called to do. When you face uncertainty and the future is unclear, remember who holds time in the palm of his hand. When the future is uncertain, listen to this carefully, okay? Passionately pursue today. That's in our mission statement for this church. And you rely on the one who provides that daily bread. So let's pray.